Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 1st, 2010, and my guest is Arnold Kling. Arnold blogs at EconLog, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. His latest book is Unchecked and Unbalanced, How the Discrepancy Between Knowledge and Power Caused the Financial Crisis and Threatens Democracy. Arnold, welcome back to EconTalk. Oh, good to be here, Russ. Uh, what is the discrepancy between knowledge and power that, that is the focus of your book? The idea is that knowledge has become increasingly specialized and dispersed, but power is becoming increasingly concentrated. That's the discrepancy. And why is that important? Well, as uh, we've, I'm sure, discussed many times on, the, on the, this program, the um, markets uh, allow for dispersed knowledge to be aggregated. This is Hayek's story, uh, so that you know, information flows into prices and markets work that way. So that if knowledge is becoming increasingly dispersed, that would suggest that you would want to have uh, more social transactions mediated by markets. And yet we have this oddity that uh, power, political power, is becoming more concentrated and, and perhaps we're having uh, more transactions mediated by um, central planning. And if that's true, then there's some, there's a, that discrepancy should be causing you know, inefficiency and just general dissatisfaction. Well, let's start by talking about uh, the dispersion of knowledge. It's a really uh, fascinating part of the book. Uh, and your observations on specialization. So you confess this isn't an easy thing to measure, obviously. There's no uh, Gini coefficient for knowledge or uh, any respectable, uh, me- simple measure. But there's a lot of suggestions that, that in, in the world around us that knowledge has gotten uh, more specialized, and that our tasks have gotten more specialized. Give us some of that information. Yeah, yeah we have some indicators. It, it's too bad. That, I mean, it, yeah, something like a Gini coefficient for knowledge, you'd think you could almost develop that if you really decided that that's what you wanted to do. And if some researcher wants to do that in some field, like library science or something, that would be a kind of a cool thing to do. But uh, there are a number of indications. Um, you can track the number of medical specialties, uh, and that's clearly gone up. I think you can track legal specialties. If you go to a college campus, you will see many more possible majors than you did 30 years ago. Um, <clears throat> you can see that product diversity uh, has gotten higher, and you know pe- there are people who argue that that's a big welfare increase. The, that they're ju- just the fact that there are more different products out there. Some say it's a decrease. They think we can't make these choices. Uh, the, the Barry Schwartz argument. argument. Yeah, yes. it's not my favorite, but uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot more uh, specialization within product design. Clearly, yeah. Um, and there are a lot of occupations that just didn't exist years ago. I mean, I, my favorite example. Uh, you know, a friend of mine's, you know, two college graduate daughters have, you know, one has a job as a web designer for a large financial firm, and the another one is uh, works with a company that does social media marketing, whatever that is. Well, well those jobs didn't exist 20 years when these kids were born. Right. Um, and so there, there's just been the proliferation of new, new occupations that, uh, and I think you could also document that. You also point out, which I like, uh, how much harder it is to be a, a Renaissance person, right? That it was imaginable 400 years ago that you could read most, you could you could master a relatively large part of the world's knowledge four or 500 years ago. Yeah, I think people thought, you know, that I've heard, seen it argued that someone like, you know, uh, Leibniz basically knew just about everything to, that could be known <laughs> at that time. Uh, you know, and you could have <laughs> someone like Da Vinci who was, you know, just a, superior in many fields, now you're considered a, a renaissance person if you are good in a couple of things. You know something about lots of things rather than mastering. 
Yeah, or yeah, you can master a couple things, or you can know something about a lot. But the notion that the same person could be a master in many fields is just—it's—it's it's almost unthinkable now. Of course, you could argue that that's simply a, a change in the returns to mastery, right? The the cost of mastering lots of things has probably gone up, and maybe that's proof of your point. Uh, yeah, and well, certainly, the return <laughs> to specialization has gone up, right? Yeah. Um, and I—I I think within every subfield, it would. It would be true as well, as you point out. Medicine and law be an example. Uh, mathematics, Leib- the Leibniz of today, whoever that is, uh, the smartest. You know, I- I'm thinking of a beer ed. He's the smartest man in the world. Um, how much of modern mathematics, modern physics, could N- a Newton or Leibniz alive today master? And the answer is not all of it. Not even within their narrow, their quote narrow discipline of math or physics. Yeah, I would think even compared to when we went to graduate school in economics and going to graduate school today, the amount of economics that you would not cover as a graduate student would be a lot higher today. I mean, there's just so much more that you would have. You know, if you wanted to be try to sort of be, try to be the complete economist, you know, and you know today you'd you know think of all the you know, finance, which which was around when we were there, but behavioral economics was not. Experimental economics was not. Um, or it was less prominent. And yeah. the, you know, these, what they call macroeconomics now, you know, I, I used to call myself a macroeconomist. I can't follow contemporary macroeconomics. I mean, I sort of can, but it's, you know, these, you know, Euler, these <laughs> you know, highly mathematical Euler equation stuff. Yeah, although I'm not, you know, some of that is, it's interesting. You know, I think there's probably a difference between being a pediatric kidney specialist and being a um, some kind of flavor of macroeconomist in terms of the social value of of what the mastery involves of that narrow subdiscipline. Uh, there's certainly a profusion of journals in every discipline. So if you really want to call yourself a master of, say, the literature within any field. Um, I'm just not sure that that leads to any uh, true mastery in in some areas, but uh, economics, for example. But uh, let's take your point as true that there's been two things, I think, two phenomena, an explosion of knowledge and a specialization within that wider span of knowledge uh, so that anyone – it's really a combination of the returns and the (laughs) – the underlying landscape, right? Yeah. The returns to mastery of a narrow subdiscipline have gone up, and there's just more to, to learn. So the the idea that uh, it's clearly true that knowledge, I accept your, your point, I think most people would, that knowledge is more dispersed. And, uh, and, and let's emphasize, this isn't just an issue for people who are trying to become academics. It's, a peop- it's true for somebody in business. If you want to be a CEO, there are many more things that you have to understand than you used to. I mean, you, know, you didn't used to have to understand information technology uh, to be a CEO. The, uh, you, didn't, you didn't have to do, be an expert in global supply chain management. Uh, you didn't necessarily have to understand logistics. You didn't have to be as sophisticated in finance. Um, so, uh, and I, I would even say that for consumers, the amount of knowledge you need is much more. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot more different financial instruments available for you to either trip up on or take advantage of. There's, you know, all sorts of different products and services that didn't exist. So it, it affects every. Every form of uh, behavior. So let's stick with the economy for a minute, then we'll turn to the government side. So the economy faced with this reality, which it's creating, of course, in an emergent Hayekian way, um, responds by, as you point out in the book, outsourcing, and not just overseas outsourcing, but what we would call um, less vertical integration, right? More outsourcing of delegation of, uh, of tasks outside the the, the umbrella of the firm itself, hiring all kinds of specialists to do tasks, data processing, legal compliance, et cetera, right? And the, for the consumer as well. Uh, yeah. h- households are outsourcing more of the food preparation, more cleaning, lawn care, um, and 
they're do, engaging in much more complex uh, forms of electronic communication. So you, now you have your cell phone. Do you, si- do you still keep your landline? Uh, so life has become more complex for everybody in this environment. Right, although, again, it's kind of a weird thing. Um, I have a, a, a computer network in my house so that I can access the Internet wirelessly. That's a bizarre thing. Right, I'm yeah. running an IT center, uh, and I do that. So you, I, you know, you, it's, that's why there's a measurement question here. Has my household gotten more specialized or less specialized? What the heck am I doing with a um, an IT network in my house? Why wouldn't I get that provided some other way? And of course, I sort of do. I, you know, Verizon supplies it. I don't really master much of it, other than opening the door for a person that I presume works for Verizon and letting them drill on the wall of my house to do the wiring, etc. So um, the phenomenon, and of course I understand very little of it. I'm good at turning it on and off. Um, But it's a little hard to measure, um, again, these these phenomena. And and just one other comment on that is that it really makes us very much dependent on other people's expertise. Yeah. So, you know, when this when this when something goes down on your network, you know, you have to call a service person, you know, maybe somebody in India or whatever, and you you're really grateful when the person at the other end can actually solve your problem. Yeah, boy. Um and you know, we're relying on all sorts of expertise, sort of almost implicitly. Like when you when you buy the computer, you sort of trust that the computer will be compatible with your network. Um, and that's that's kind of trusting the expertise of the people manufacturing and selling your computer. Uh, so it's just incredible the amount of expertise that we rely on uh, in this specialized world. Uh, and I just want to mention, uh, scheduled for next week is a podcast uh, with Alain de Baton on, um, on this phenomenon, just the psychological impact of the fact that our job descriptions are much narrower than they used to be, and what we spend our days doing, uh, by definition, is is typically much much more specialized uh, than it was uh, a long time ago, uh, even perhaps very recently. Um, so, and just to pick up, yeah, on, on a little bit, you know, you had Dan Pink on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and you know, he's talking about people uh, <laughs> needing to, uh, you know, feel this sense of mastery and so on, and as a source of and, satisfaction and, and autonomy and, and these other things. And one possibility I raise is that for a lot of people, they're going to have to get some of that satisfaction in their hobbies uh, rather than in their job. Their job, they may have to specialize in something that maybe they didn't particularly want to enjoy uh, and devote their life to, and uh, and they might have to end up. Well, I see it more as a personality issue. I think there are a lot of people who love doing one thing and mastering it. Um, the guy who, who comes to my house and sets up my wireless connection. Now, there's some challenges probably in certain situations, but pretty much that's what you're doing all day long. If you think about it, you get the satisfaction. You're helping somebody get access to the Internet. It makes you feel good. But the day to, the moment-to-moment challenges of the job are not that exhilarating, I assume. I could be wrong. Yeah. I don't, you know, and I think it's very important in all these stories that you don't presume that someone's like you. That's not my favorite job. Maybe it is someone else's favorite. But it does seem to me that uh, for some people that that's probably very, very satisfying to go into a job with a person under some stress, the homeowner who's worried that this isn't going to work, and you do it well and you see a beaming face at the end of that experience because they're so appreciative of what you did. Um, you solve people's problems that way. You know, they, maybe that's very satisfying. But it could be just some people don't have a personality where they enjoy doing something similar. They really have to, quote, break it up. So I'm not sure it's in the nature of, uh, of, of the types of specialization we have. It could just be more there's some people who, who, who want variety very badly in their, in their minute-to-minute, moment-to-moment, hour-to-hour workspace. So it's an interesting question, but anyway, let, let's turn to um, to government now. So while knowledge in the work pl- in the in the economy is getting incredibly dispersed, much more specialization, uh, and as a result, power, you could argue, and we're going to come back to this, power in the marketplace is therefore being dispersed because knowledge is dispersed. Uh, power in the government is not 
tends in recent years to be some more centralized. What, what's going on there? Well, there's several things. One, one of the things is that the number of government units stays fixed. You know, we have one Congress, we have 50 states, and so on. Uh, meanwhile, the population within these units increases, so that increases the scale. And the other, another thing is that the amount of money, just, just to use money as a measure, per government unit is going up. That is, each state is spending more, it's spending more uh, per constituent, and you know, the federal government is spending more per constituent. So if you take the dollars per constituent going up and you multiply that by constituents per legislator or constituents per government unit going up, you get an explosion in the overall scale of government. Uh, in addition, you get, so I call that scale creep. In addition, you get what I call scope creep, that is government seeming to become involved in, in things that, at least in the United States, it didn't used to be involved in. Um, so. Uh, you know, it didn't used to be there. What, what didn't used to be an environmental protection function. Uh, it didn't used to be as involved in help providing health insurance, and it seems to be getting you know, more involved. And <laughs> at the federal level, it wasn't very much involved in education, but it's becoming increasingly involved. Uh, so the both the scope and the scale of government have been increasing. Wouldn't one of the relevant measures, though, be um, the size of government employment? It's true that, that, as you point out in the book, that dollars allocated per legislator, that is, the scope of senators or Congress uh, representatives to spend money, has certainly grown because government's gotten bigger. And as you point out, there's only 435 members of Congress. That hasn't grown. There's only 100 uh Senators, that hasn't changed. You could argue it should get smaller, though. You, you know, it's not. It's not. It could be they're more efficient at, at allocating. It could be, and therefore, I, it starts to think about the employees who disperse the money, not just the ones who affect the allocation of the money. Um, size of government at the federal level hasn't grown. That I don't think has grown very much. State and local have grown tremendously, right? So you could argue that you know, there's always this weird tension. That you'd think that state and local government would be, uh, it'd be good that they grow because they're closer to the constituents. It's not obvious that they are. Uh, it's not obvious that state and locals run more efficiently. If anything, I think it's probably run less efficiently. It seems to me people pay less attention. There's less oversight, less monitoring. I'm babbling. Go ahead, Arnold. Why don't you react? Um, I think that the, 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 when I first started to write this book, uh, I was going to use as kind of my hook, my basic example, the county where we live, Montgomery County, where we have nine county councils. in Maryland. In Maryland. Yeah, there are Montgomery counties and other places, but the one in Maryland. Uh, there are nine county council members allocating a budget of $4.5 billion. Now, there are very few people in this world who could, on, you know, if you divide that that 4.5 by 5, that's $900 million. There are very no, by few, nine. It's five. By nine. You could, sorry, you get $500 million. So there are very few people who could spend $500 million apiece every year uh, consistently, you know, that, that have that, that kind of power. So it's just, and nobody's heard of these people. Uh, they're not. You know, they, it's not, they're never going to be they're president of the house, U.S. They're not even household names in Montgomery County. I don't know who they are. Yeah. And I, I live there as you do. Yeah. I, I could maybe name two of them or three. And, uh, so, you know, so, it's, it's a, so that was my example. It's an incredible amount of power. And, and, and it's, it's, there's very little checks and balances. Actually, I think basically, you know, the county's sort of run by the teachers' union. I mean, I think there are a lot of localities that are run by public employees' unions, and certainly, in, you know, th that's, my, that's my impression of the politics of the county. So, so the teachers' union follows it. Pretty much nobody else uh, follows it closely enough or has a big enough impact. Uh, so that I, was, was, that I have to interrupt. I always find it fascinating, and I, uh, I may have mentioned this recently on the program. I always find it fascinating that uh, people running for office in, in my area will have yard signs sprinkled around the neighborhood with a little apple on it that says, Teacher Recommended, as if that's a selling point. 
Uh, to me, it means they're in the pocket of special interests. How about parent recommended, yeah. student recommended? But why is teach? Yeah. It's yeah. supposed to make me think. Oh, they're they're good for education. It tells me they're good for teachers. It's yeah. not the same thing. Why is that so hard for people to understand? And they're not even necessarily good for teachers. They're good for sort of fattening up the administration within the well. That's uh, true. Yeah, within the, the schools. But uh, yeah, no, I, w- I want an apple with a line through it yeah. as, as, as a symbol for my candidate. But uh, anyway, the. Um, um, but that yeah you know, that that seemed to me an incredible amount of power. Um, As you point out in the book, they're all one party. Yeah, they're all one party, and it's um, so so the, there are very little checks and balances at work. Uh, you know, dealing with those people, and I think that so that was going to be be my big example. So back to your issue of state and local government. Yeah, there is there is that problem that uh, they are not that that the checks and balances uh, can often work poorly. And again, and the governmental units are just not what they used to be. You know, you, you can't call this local government. There are close to a million people in the county trying to elect these nine representatives. So that's in part why an, a special interest group has so much power because the, the you know, they don't know the, these nine people don't know or care about their constituents as individuals. They only care about these really you know a really large aggregate. Um, you know, this Montgomery County is about the size of one of the largest cantons in Switzerland. Uh, so, if Montgomery County were in Switzerland, the legislation would ha- the legislature would have probably 150 people in it, and it would be a canton. That is, b- there would be a governmental layer underneath that that would be the local government. So, Montgomery County would not be the local government in Switzerland. Montgomery County would be sort of like a state. Right, and it would have a hundred a legislature size of about 120, 100 to one hundred and fifty people. Um, so you're so, suggesting that we need a larger government inter- measured by legislators or representatives uh, to disperse their power somewhat, potentially as a way to solve this problem. But yeah, that that's one way, one direction or to go. Smaller, or less spending would also yeah. do it. Yeah. Would yeah. Go but, that way. But yeah. one direction to go. If you wanted to, from a, just a purely democratic point of view, um, reconstruct the world of, let's say, 1800, you would have to divide this country into about 250 equal-sized states, and then each state would have to be divided then into these you know, much smaller units. Or if you want this country to look like Switzerland, which is, I think, you know, maybe the last example of a truly federalist uh, country in the world, you would have to take a state like Maryland, divide it up in each, have each county be sort of like a state with a legislature of a, a hundred or more people, and then the county, each county would have to further subdivide into smaller government units. Sounds terribly inefficient, though. Okay, so that so it could be that scale in government is is not a bug as I'm describing it. It's a feature. Now, I think from I think from the standpoint of view of democratic equality, it's almost clearly a bug. You know, if you have you know nine people, you know, running a county of a million people, that's really incredible concentration of power. So whether that's economically efficient or not, I think we can say that from a democratic point of view, it's hard to feel that you're equal to those nine people, that you're on the same level, that they belong to you, that they're your neighbors or anything like or that. Or as you point out, that you're equal to the people who influence them. And yeah. you pick the teachers union, which is a, a um, you know, one special interest group. The two that I've picked on in Montgomery County are the, the cab, taxi cab business, which is, uh, there's a lot of donations that come from one taxi cab company, and they basically... I think they have a monopoly in the county. Yeah. It's a bizarre idea. Similarly, the county makes it extremely difficult for a large store to open. They have to have special permitting if you're a, a <clears throat> super Walmart. So there's no super Walmart as far as I know in Montgomery County. Um, and the groceries yeah. is not very well provided. In, yeah. in no, re- re- and real estate development is you know, pretty much a graft thing as, as best I understand it you know supposedly we have so all cynical Arnold supposedly we have all these planning regulations that would make our county nice and pristine it actually looks pretty ugly in many areas and you, you assume that that's just because the developers uh, understand which political party their uh, bread is buttered on um, yeah so the 
but so potentially this scale, um, this, this high scale could be a feature. Um, but let's take it's an sufficient. Yeah, let, but let's take the ex- an example that's been studied, which is school districts. People have economists have studied the optimal scale of a school district, and it's much smaller than Montgomery County. Yes, it's it's inefficient to have a school district with you know 150, 200 students in it, but you don't need uh, you know 100,000 students to have an efficient scale. I think there were, I think maybe the efficient scales maybe in the like 10,000, 20,000 range. I, I'd have to check on that. Uh, but we have in this country consolidated school districts to the point where you know, many, many school districts are much larger than that sort of point of maximum efficiency. And so all you get at that point is additional concentration of power with no gain in efficiency. Yeah, there's obviously a trade-off there uh, between responsiveness to to the will of the electorate. You know, again, it's the same as any... We, we see this in economics all the time. What's the efficient size of a restaurant? Well, it's not one that serves 4,000 people. Uh, and so we see, we, we see franchises that brand restaurants of smaller size, but all that emerges from the marketplace. It's pretty clear that the school system isn't emerging from anything other than the pursuit of power. Um, it's not turning out so well. Um, so let me, let me challenge your, um, your viewpoint and and raise an alternative view. So, in the face of all this specialization uh, that, that's going on in the private sector, so we have two trends. We have this that, that you're pointing out seems to be a, a discrepancy of the specialization and the dispersion of knowledge in the private sector, and you have the concentration of power and influence in the in the government sector. A lot of people argue it's actually the opposite. It's true there's a dispersion of knowledge, but there's an increase and in a centralization of power in the, in, the, in the private sector, in the economic sector. So, for example, uh, there's economies of scale in, say, uh, search engines. There's economies of scale in, in the media world. And as a result, we're getting – it's true there's a lot of specialization, but the units that are the umbrella for the specialization, Google or uh, Disney – a lot of people worry. I'm not one of them, but a lot of people do worry that that that, that offsets this dispersion you're talking about. And there's actually a great deal of concentration of power. And as a result, as you do mention the possibility in the book, you've got to have this centralization of power on the government side to fight against this centralization of power on the economic side. Okay, a, a couple of things there. Let me just start with the last one. I don't think that there's much evidence that having a strong central government weakens concentration of economic power. I think we really sh- we shouldn't make that assumption. I think it actually leads to the opposite. Um, that ultimately, uh, powerful government and powerful uh, large firms are friends. And the and the classic example comes from is in the really the first section of the book talking about the financial crisis yeah. where Goldman Sachs, where Goldman Sachs, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, yeah. uh, they, you know, government will do anything but put them out of business or even allow them to go out of business. So even when they fail, they they don't go out of business. Uh, so to say that that big government is the enemy is a bulwark of uh, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it defends the little people against them is it, kind of backwards. Great um, point. Going back to the uh, economies of scale, there really are economies of scale that uh, you know that utility companies can take advantage of that communications companies can take advantage of that maybe Google can take advantage of. There are some genuine economies of scale. And there's nothing wrong with uh, economies of scale emerging and people taking advantage of them. And sometimes uh, they go away, or people find a way to overcome them. And so the you know, somebody who seems to be on top, like IBM, uh, you know, se- there seem to be fantastic scale economies in the computer industry. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, and we, we had to worry about breaking up IBM, and it turned out we didn't have to worry about breaking up IBM. Yeah. So I guess I'm not. You know, I, th- I think that process emerges okay. I think that the, in the case of government, the scale economy of the production system is quite artificial. As government says, we're going to do this. Uh, it's it doesn't. It it, it you know we're going to have large school systems, and it's not as you say because we've because the large school systems have competed away 
out-competed small school system is just because Thank we've you. just decided to do it. We, we, we'll do can. it because we can. Yeah. Um, a similar example, which you've written about extensively at, at EconLog and is also in the book, is this whole idea that we need a, a systemic regulator, global regulator, which which has a certain appeal, right? Someone's going to look out for everything and not and not just uh, – we need more generalists uh, in that dimension, and you're skeptical of that also. Yeah, so in, in something like the financial system, you know – it's a, I think, a classic case where you the 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 expertise that you want to have to regulate the financial system just plain does not exist. So what happened, for example, when the you know subprime mortgage crisis hit, you know Bernanke and others thought that. Well, it it will be a very confined crisis. You know, it will affect housing a little bit. I thought that too. I was right. wrong. I was yeah. wrong. Yeah, a lot of a lot I of people. Th- and it turned out that a lot of the people regulating the system didn't understand what I would call the embedded put options that were being that were that companies that were uh, were writing at uh, to a great extent. You know, AIG being the classic example. So it turned out that the real expertise didn't exist. And I'd say even in September or October of 2008, as I was watching Bernanke and Paulson, I was wincing at some of the things they were saying because I understand enough of mortgage finance to know that they just had it completely wrong in their understanding of how these instruments worked. Um, and well, you're so, presuming that they were trying to understand it, and right? There's a you know we have to, it's it's a bizarre situation. Yeah, They're making public pronouncements. That are supposed to calm markets or maybe disguise what they're actually doing, right? No, so. but, but I, I don't know. I, I think I think they genuinely, in this case, did not understand uh, the instruments they were dealing with. Because I mean, they did. I don't think that Paulson was cynical when he said we were going to buy up the toxic assets. Fair it was enough. only after they passed the bill, the TARP bill, that enough experts were able to kind of get it through his thick skull. That buying that these are not the types of assets that you can just buy oh, up buy. like yeah. bonds, yeah. and uh, so that was a real in- instance, a real demonstration that of the a lack of expertise on the part of the people who had the power. And Shouldn't I think- he have checked before? Wouldn't that have been an interesting strategy instead of being told after? Right. It's not, you know going back to this idea of dispersion. It's it's not an indictment of Paulson or Bernanke that they didn't understand mortgage finance as well as you did, who worked at Freddie Mac. Uh, the indictment is. Why didn't they draw on the knowledge of others in advance? And of course, the next question would be: Why didn't they have to resign? Well, why weren't they not asked to resign, or why was their resignation not tendered for that failure? That's a separate issue. Yeah, but you know, in, so what you you know what you keep wanting in theory is this super regulator who will know who to ask, ask the right people, obtain the right information, have the good database. Yeah, and, and it just it just it's just elusive. I mean, it's just. For, and it's for the reason that Hayek, you know, explained during the socialist calculation debate. You just cannot put all of the information into a central computer and outthink the dispersed knowledge and information that you get in the market. It's just not possible to do that. That's okay, so very. It, I think it's very frustrating for people to think about that and very they, counterintuitive. <laughs> they prefer it not to be true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, at the end of this month, I, I've been invited to participate in a uh, conference on sort of the American labor force or something like that. And and I get this sense. Maybe maybe I'll be wrong, but I'll be like you know sort of feel like the token Negro at a Ku Klux Klan rally there because I think uh, my guess is everyone there is going to have what they think of as a solution that the government can implement to make centrally. To work better, yeah. And, and I'm going to ask these people, well, what if you didn't have the government to back your solution? Could you raise money to be an entrepreneur and implement this solution? And they might say, well, I could, but these the people I'm trying to help couldn't afford to pay for it. And then I'll push back, well... Could you raise money for you know? Could you convince me as a charitable donor yeah. to invest in your solution? But uh, I think there's just this the the idea that that de- a decentralized approach to solving a problem, a trial and error approach, is just 
very counterintuitive to people. They they've got to believe that there's you know there, there there's a, an intelligent designer out there who can solve it centrally. An expert. Uh, let me let me push back on that idea in a different way. Uh, there, there was a really fascinating article in the New Yorker a few year a year or so ago by Atul Gawanda, the doctor, the physician. And he talks about a person. I think we talked about this actually uh, in our podcast on healthcare. Um, a person comes to the uh, to an old, a senior citizen, old person comes to the office with with a, with a bunch of problems, yeah. and and she gets sent to a bunch of specialists, and they each talk about the thing to fix, you know, her her yeah. bad feet and her heart problem. She's got cancer, and so she goes to all the specialists, and they each. Uh, prescribe a bunch of either drugs or therapies or other things. But there's a, a generalist she also sees who sees that these problems, one, some of these solutions are not going to work well with each other. They don't play, play well together. Yeah. And rather than looking for a nail with the hammer that his specialty is always using, he prescribes a more general set of, of solutions that are much better for her. And Gawanda's point is we need more generalists, especially for old people. And you know, I would argue that the current system, our healthcare system, destroys the incentives for that kind of market-based solution. And maybe so. Therefore, I can understand the appeal of, of mandating more generalists. Could you argue that the specialization we're talking about in the regulatory world, or in the in the individual, in the private sector, in the voluntary world? Uh, we, we need to subsidize generalists, people who take a look at a bigger picture. It's true they can't master all the details of any of, say, the derivatives market. But don't we need people to oversee these these complex systems? Because no individual has an incentive. It's a very common argument of the left. No individual has an incentive to care about the fragility of the whole stability and fragility of the whole system. So, don't isn't that what a, a potential role for regulators? Um, it's a horrible argument, I know, Arnold, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's it, one I hear a lot. And it's very it's thought provoking. Um, again, the question, in theory, if you find this, you know, if you find this, uh, you know, almost omniscient generalist, uh, let me know. Because uh, in theory, it's, it certainly is a great idea. Uh, I think what in practice you get is that people who, uh, who's either whose view of themselves or the expectations that people place on them are unrealistically high. And it's usually a combination of both because somebody who had a realistic understanding of their limitations probably would not find their way into a position where they're uh, expected to do something that they don't think is, is possible. I mean, let me give you a, a, like a trivial example: uh, estimating the multiplier from the fiscal stimulus. If somebody, you know, said Arnold, go on CNN and tell them what the multiplier is for the fiscal stimulus, I would babble because they often, I they often want to know. I would, I would, you know, I'd babble. I'd have no idea because I it could be negative, it could be positive for. I mean, I could give arguments all over the place. I don't believe it's an empirically demonstrable number. On the other hand, Mark Zandi comes on there and says it's 1.5. Well, he's the one who gets on TV. And those are the types of people who make it into the positions of, of power. So what you end up with if you believe in this uh, you know, omniscient regulator, you kind of get what you pay for. You get somebody who thinks that they know more than they really do. And, you know, I think that's, and who lives with that expectation. So someone like Paulson says, people expect me to have no, all this to knowledge, know to, to act as if I have all this knowledge. So by golly, and I've always, that's how I've gotten ahead. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. And then it turns out that he doesn't. Of course, he will never admit it. Probably even afterward, uh, that he lacked if the knowledge. If you read his memoir on no, this, I have not. I have not either. But I suspect there's <laughs> there isn't a chapter called "Where I Messed Up." But maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pr it's a little more like Nietzsche's uh, wonderful chapter, "Why I'm So Smart," "Why I'm So Strong." <laughs> that's the that's the modern memoir uh, generally. Um, let me react to that because I think. Couldn't you argue, and I think this will get us pointed towards your arguments for alternative ways to 
uh, run government. Couldn't you argue that a CEO is a generalist, right? In the old days, if you were, say, uh, an energy company, uh, the CEO of a lot of energy companies is a former engineer, uh, in my small knowledge of this area. Uh, somebody who came up the ranks in the company as an engineer, sometimes as a chemist in other companies, they were a specialist, and they suddenly find themselves in a generalist position. They know a lot about a core competency of the business, the, the engineering part, but inevitably they know very little about a whole set of stuff that, that, that you've already mentioned, personnel, management of, of, of people, uh, Finance. IT, finance. There's a thousand areas now that a, that a CEO has to deal with. Yeah. Now, they, they're flawed. They're just one human being. But they're in competition with other CEOs in other companies. And we rely on that competition as well as the market's response to the scope of the company, uh, as we talked about earlier, to make that work pretty well. Uh, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and in fact, you're a lot, I think, more skeptical than I am uh, of how well that works, and maybe I should be more skeptical. But you suggest in the book that maybe that's a model we ought to move toward in reducing the centralization of power in government, trying to introduce more competition in government to the extent that there is uh, a centralization of power, rely on competition to reduce its likelihood to reward hubris and mistakes. Okay. Well, you know, so think of the checks and balances that are in place in the market when a CEO uh, thinks that he, we'll use a he, can, uh, can, can, do, can, uh, can do more than he really can. So let's say he buys, into, uh, buys a company in an, in an industry that he doesn't understand. Well, chances are he's going to mismanage that company and somewhere along the way, shareholders or investors out there are going to punish him for doing that or try to snap up that mismanaged company at a low price, manage it better, and you know, make it a better company. So there are these, these sorts of mechanisms in place, the fight for corporate control, as it's sometimes called, or just shareholder value, that uh, tend to limit the they, they provide a check and a balance on the, the, the CEO who thinks they know too much. But imagine a world in which the CEO, there was no check and balance. If CEO says, I think I'm capable of doing X, he just, all right, he goes out and does it. He says, and he's a really smart guy. Yeah. yeah. He, he, could be, yeah he, he could be really talented. But he says, I, I think I can take this energy industry, this energy business, and diversify it into manufacturing or finance. And he just goes ahead does it with, with no checks, uh, where, you know, where do you think you'd end up with that? You'd probably end up with a lot of really inefficient, large, badly run companies. And that's my model of government, that be, these people you know, have the ability to just say by fiat, we are capable of doing this. We are capable of regulating drugs. We are capable of... Uh, <laughs> regulating urban planning. We are capable of uh, creating uh, creating electric car and a, a grid full of electric cars out of no, out of nothing. Uh, you, if you, you and you get these people being able to do that without any check, without any um, anyone being able to say no to them, and, and look where you end up. But that isn't really the way we regulate. Many things, right? We have a weird set of checks and balances. I don't, I don't think it's a very well designed one. Uh, let's take a couple examples in the regulatory world. Uh, most regulations. This is shocking to me when I first discovered this. I find it it's unbelievable. But most regulations are not very specific. Uh, the specificity is turned over to the agency, not an expert. It's not the head of the EPA who writes the regulation or the head of the FDA who writes the regulation or the head of the – it's not Barney Frank uh, in the case of financial regulations and it's not President Obama in the case of health care, but a whole raft of, of individuals who have expertise in the areas that they're involved in. They have a lot of knowledge. Uh, they, they write those regulations, the, the details, uh, and then it goes through this bizarre process of adjudication through a, a, a court system that most of us have no knowledge of, and it's and they fight. People fight over it. There is lots of competition. The the industry fights against the the activists and the NGOs 
the, the non-governmental organizations, the, the charitable folks, whether they're, it's the wrong word, but the nonprofits, whether they're, you know, the Sierra Club or, or other groups. And they, there is a process of back and forth. Um, and, you know, if they, if they mess up, there's pushback from members of Congress who hear complaints from their constituents. So it's a very Byzantine, highly uh, specialized process of which most of us have no knowledge of. Um, but it's, it's not as autocratic as you, as you make it out to be. Okay, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. I, I, it, in, in some ways, I, I felt more comfortable as you were talking about that, although knowing in the background that typically you know, who wins in that process is the biggest business with the biggest lawyers. Yeah. Um, which, uh, <coughs> but you know, you're right, it is, it is a process. It's, not, uh, it's, certainly, it's not purely autocratic. I think where, you're, where it applies more depressingly is, is, the, is the recent crisis where Bernanke and Paulson did many things with very few checks and balances, and that Congress and, and to some extent, the people acquiesced, though there's quite a bit of, of anger about it. I find it remarkable how angry people are. Um, yeah, I, I've said that this election is be the first chance that people have to vote against the bailouts. You know, the, the general interpretation of the election is people are... Frustrated because of unemployment and the economy and whatever, but I think this is the first chance they've had to vote against the bailouts, and that's what they're looking forward to. Yeah, I think there's, uh, um, to some extent, an overreaction to the change, but I think it's the the speed at which it occurred, the involvement of the government in the car industry, the involvement of the government in the financial sector. Uh, it's not so much that it we're on the road to socialism because I don't think we are, but it sure looks like a first step uh, or, or a, a, a hundred yards down the road. Certainly an increase in the scope of government, yeah. think, doing things that it didn't do before. So let's talk about uh, ways that, that government might exploit some of the improvements uh, in, in knowledge and information. One of the things you talk about in the book is the role of the Internet in changing um, access to information. Uh, talk about why that's important and what do you think we could do to uh, take advantage of that? Yeah, well, there are a number of things that are important, I think, about the Internet. One is, uh, I think it increases the ability of sort of specialized knowledge to sort of assert itself because, you know, there's, there's nothing stopping anybody from putting up their website or putting up their application. Uh, and it's very easy to aggregate information in different ways, from you know things like Wikipedia, very you know commonly known sites, to just really unknown niche sites. Um, so there's all all sorts of ways, <coughs> and it's done in a you know, very decentralized way. Um, so you know a contrast would be with the mass media of the 50s and 60s of radio and television, where you know it took you know, if you wanted to communicate using radio or television, you know, you had to pay a huge amount of money to get a license, to get broadcasting equipment, to get, you know, the trans transmittal tower, the whole bit. So it was just a, you know, there were only a few people who could uh, send out information uh, over the mass media of the 50s and 60s. Now anybody can. Uh, so it's a just, that's a very different environment. And I think it, it creates advantages for the um, for decentralized knowledge and for the uses of decentralized knowledge, and it it, it creates fewer advantages for concentration of power. Uh, you know, you, the president can't give a fireside chat and have everyone listen to it and nobody challenge it. Uh, that that doesn't that doesn't happen now. Uh, you know, when the president speaks, maybe my guess is fewer people actually tune in. And then of those that tune in, a lot of them are critics, and they instantly post their criticism on the Internet. They I mean, get their say. They get their say. Um, you know, so it's, that's, that's a different environment. The other thing that is interesting, I think the Internet is an interesting model of a almost anarchy type of situation. The only true central control is the domain registration. Uh, I think it's called ICANN, where yep. you... Uh, you know, if you want to get ArnoldKling.com or 
russroberts.net or some domain name, you have to go through this one central registry. Beyond that, there's no central control. It's just if you... If it's an ecosystem. You, if you, yeah, if you join this system and you, uh, you know, link up according to the protocols of the system, uh, you're on. And when... And when people need to solve a generic problem on the Internet, there are these things called the Internet Engineering Task Forces. At least this was the way it worked you know, 10 years ago, where the task force would assemble to solve a problem. Let's say it was to standardize JavaScript. That was maybe 15 years ago. They, they, they set up a task force to t standardize JavaScript. And... It's just volunteers, people who are you interested. Said they set it up, but it kind of set yeah. itself up. It kind of just coalesced. Yeah, I don't know who. It happens all the time in yeah. technical problems now. And so the group of people gets together. We say, we need to standardize. So all the people who have a strong interest in it, you know, in how JavaScript works, uh, are on that task force. They <coughs> meet, they negotiate, they come up with a proposed solution, and uh, they they send out the proposed solution, and when and basically when people stop complaining about that pro, comp, proposed solution, it stabilizes and it becomes the solution, and the task force disperses. Can you imagine government working like that, where people get together, they're unpaid, and there's volunteers until the problem is solved, and then they disappear? Uh, wh wh what an amazing system! And if if we could have that work in actual government, you know how much better it would be. Yeah, I want to ask you about the again an economics example, a private sector example before I go to the government, um, which kind of introduces I think some more nuance into this specialization thing. It's just so it's just such a fascinating to me just economic phenomenon. So I uh, I want to learn I want to use Skype, mm -hmm. and I have a Mac, so I go download Skype and um, I go to connect and it, it doesn't connect. It's not working. I try, it tries to sign in. The little ball goes around. Then nothing happens. That's weird. So I throw it out, and I try a different. I try again. I reinstall it. I restart my computer. Some of the obvious things. Nothing works. Now, one way to solve that problem in 1950, if we had had Skype in 1950, would be to call the Skype repair person who would come to my house in his little uniform with the Skype badge, and he'd look at my computer. Oh, you, you need X, Y, or Z. I don't do that. I get on the web, I Google Skype, Mac, OS, can't sign in. Pull up a bunch of pages from around 2007 where people had a problem like I did. And some of them are on websites where it's called Answer My Problem. <laughs> and, and, and I look at the answers, you know, this is the best answer. I try it, nothing happens, it doesn't work. On about the seventh try down the Google page count, uh, seventh page of the Google, Google search, I find somebody who says, oh, you need to throw out this folder. I go to my son, who's better at computers than I am. He's 15, and he says, I don't think you should fool around with your library. I don't think you should throw out something, a library folder. Yeah, that's probably he's probably right. And I go down, I scroll down some more, and someone said, yeah, I tried that thing about throwing out that folder. That didn't work, but it helped me because I realized I got to throw out this even bigger subset of folders. So I tried that, and it worked. I solved the problem myself. I, I'm not a specialist. Uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm becoming a generalist. I'm, a, I'm good at Skype repair. Yeah. But the Internet, right, allows that kind of problem solving uh, in a way that is just, un draws on, you know, it, it aggregates knowledge in an incredible way. Yeah. Now, Clay Shirky talks a lot about Correct. that, about yeah. that phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. People act, you know, and, and it, that people... <laughs> who used to maybe spend their time watching television can now spend their time creating public goods like answers to problems like how to fix Skype. Also, by the way, help me unclog my uh, my bathtub without having to call a plumber. Again, instead of calling on the specialist and, and using the plumber, um, I was able to figure out a solution. Again, it took a while. It took me maybe half an hour of, of Googling around. A lot of the solutions that were proposed didn't help me eventually um, if you send me a uh, a private envelope with self-addressed stamped envelope and a twenty-dollar bill, I'll tell you <laughs> how to, how that worked. Out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but l let's go back to government. Then, what are what? Can you talk about a task force that could disband? Could we imagine some some problems that government currently solves 
uh, through command and control that it maybe could be solved in different ways. And I want to start by mentioning I've heard you talk about it. It's not in the book, but it's just such an important point. A lot of times, government's justified on the basis of some kind of information asymmetry. Oh, it's imperfect knowledge. We've got to solve this problem this way. And some people say, for example, the financial crisis is caused by deregulation. And you've pointed out very incredibly clearly, it's such an obvious point, well, then, then the solution is just to re-regulate. And yet that's not what we did. It's so There's an enormous disconnect for political reasons often between the problems the government is allegedly solving and the solutions that are proposed. Yeah, just for the record, folks, uh, I, I didn't say that, the solu- that I believe the solution is to re-regulate. I said if you think <laughs> yeah. that, that, that what happened is we deregulated, well, find those regulations yeah, and back stick them back on. That's not happening. Um, so can we think of some examples where, even though the, the government solution now isn't very well tailored perhaps to the problem, but where there would be a, a solution that's tailored to the problem uh, that, that could be more decentralized? Um, well, let's, let's suppose government got out of the meat inspection business. Now, people, I think, are pretty awa- aware. Egg, egg inspection be another one. Okay, we've got out of, <laughs> yeah, got out of the egg inspection business. We've just gone through a period where eggs had salmonella. Suppose government got out of that business. Well, people are kind of aware that just buying eggs at random could be dangerous. So what do we think would happen? My guess is that the egg manufacturers would have a really strong interest in being able to sell certified eggs. And so they would look to somebody to create an egg inspection service. And that egg inspection service would have, some, would have to find some way to establish that it's credible. And it would want to establish and maintain its credibility. Like consumer reports. It might even have more of an incentive to maintain its credibility than the government egg inspection agency. Because my guess is hardly, you know, the government egg, egg if, if a private egg inspection agency had messed up like this, they'd be out of business, right? No one would trust them anymore. The CEO would have lost their job. The people would, would have all be fired. I mean, it, it, would, just, it would disappear. Um, but the government, we, I don't know if you know if anyone got fired over this. Maybe. Uh, but, you know, pr- perhaps nobody. There's, and there's no, there's no systemic check, check on that. Um, so that that so that's an example where uh, you, you could see a private th- thing. And emerging. yet, you point out in the book that the ratings agencies, which many people believe failed in their uh, monitoring of the financial crisis, they're still in existence. Uh, and I think there's a reason for that. But I'm going to let you give yours. Why did they go out of business? Why did Moody's and Fitch and, well, and Standard Poor? Why did part they still of the exist? problem is that the the, the, where they messed where they messed up was in rating securities that were not going to be traded in the marketplace. They the the, the purpose the whole purpose of the ratings was to uh, get lower capital requirements from the regulators. So the customer indirectly was the regulator. Uh, when Moody's rates a bond. They rate it on behalf of the seller of the bond, the corporation that's selling the bond, but there's a customer out there, in some sense, the buyer of the bond. And if Moody's betrays that customer, at some point, those customers will stop using those ratings, and so General Motors will stop going to to Moody's to get the bonds rated. But when the customer was the regulator, the regulators didn't care. The regulators didn't fire Moody's. In fact, you know, I think at, at one point somebody introduced something, a, an amendment to the financial reform bill saying that regulators could not use ratings. And there, I was excited. I thought, wow, somebody introduced that. And I thought it even passed at one point. But then I found out that in the final, yeah, you know, markup, b- finally, yeah. when it, it finally was... Uh, negotiate between the House and Senate, that that was no longer there. But uh, I think that if if the rating agencies were to mess up in rating bonds that are actually traded as badly as they messed up in rating bonds that were just being rated to 
while they were sitting on the bank's books and raided to in order to get past the regulators. Uh, <coughs> so if they'd actually ma- made that mistake regulating private bonds, and if they were not supported by the government, in fact, creating this oligopoly, uh, then I think some of them would go out of business. I, th- I think. I think. So, it, well, I think it's actually worse than that because I think the. I think they're required by law. I think GM is required by law when they issue a bond to have it be rated. And as a result, I think that is what props up those folks. That and the combination that and and the and the the def, the license to be a a, a rating agency is in effect issued by the SEC. They say you yeah. must use one of these these agencies and it's a small group of agencies. It's it's Three. like yeah, and it's three. It, yeah, and it's sort of it's sort of like the accounting business where there's like you know the big four accounting firms now, um, you know, with <laughs> so much pressure on big companies to have, you know, proper accounting. You know, there's this sense that if one more accounting firm goes out of business, you know, we we won't have a functioning accounting thing. So yeah. that so so they, um, you know, they're prote- so they're protected from going out of business now. In the same way that the rating agencies were protected from going. But in case of the rating agencies, there was something happened two months ago, or so ago that were, that was very, I think, almost ignored. It was a rather remarkable event. Um, in the new financial reform, shouldn't call it that. That um, gives it a certain. It's called it the new set of financial regulations. Uh, there were <laughs> penalties on the ratings agencies for quote making a mistake and. I, I'm not sure how that's actually enforced, right? Obviously, you can give something a AAA rating and it goes and it goes bankrupt. That 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 can happen. Ex, ex ante, you can misassess for perfectly good reasons. If you systematically misassessed, as they appear to have done, then, then you could argue they failed. So, in the new regulations, there's a stark penalty. I don't remember what it is, but they're on the hook or have either in fines or legal for for quote bad ratings. So they immediately said, uh, when Ford was going to issue a bond, they said, well, we're not going to rate this because it's too scary. Yeah. It's a it's bad time. And the government waived, waived the requirement that the Ford bond have a rating. And of course, people bought it without the rating. Yeah. But to me, that yeah. illustrated this weird, that this is a weird, very non, uh, not real normal competitive market. Um, uh, let we're almost out of time. Let, let let me ask you the following: You have a lot of creative ideas in the book for the use of vouchers, other ways to introduce more competition to the government. Uh, most of those, not all of them, but most of them are would be considered unviable politically. Okay, now, there's two strategies we could follow. Those of us who'd like to see more competition and and fewer and less power in government could push for those ideas, even though they're, quote, considered politically non-viable, and maybe over the next 10, 20, or 30 years, uh, they'll be seen as more attractive because people understand maybe some of these forces. The other is to be more activist, to look for sort of brute force ways to restrain the power of government, term limits, people proposed a bunch of stuff. Do you have any thoughts on what might work, what might be some source of optimism that government might actually get smaller down the road? I think we have a ways to go in terms of changing the culture and mindset of both elites and masses. I think for for masses, I think it's a case. You know, for for ordinary people, I think it's a case of uh, opening their eyes to possibilities. Like I talk about virtual government, a notion that you could uh, sign up and say, "I I belong to this government." For the purpose of, let's say, um, welfare programs or education, and it could be that this government is run out of California, even though you live in New Jersey. That is, I belong to a California education system, even though I live in New Jersey. Or um, you know, so that your gar- you gave an example. Your garbage collection could be run by a different. It could be public still. We don't have to necessarily privatize yeah. it, but if you want it public, why? Have it be only related to your physical jurisdiction. Yeah. Now, garbage collection makes some sense to have a physical jurisdiction, but look at lawn care. You know, we don't. You know, it, it makes as much sense to have a the same guy mow everybody's lawn in my neighborhood as it does to have the same guy pick up all the garbage in, in or teach our children. 
uh, but yet we, we, we managed to uh, to get an emergent order with you know different lawn care uh, people operating. So uh, <coughs> so we, we could disaggregate government in some way, but but it's getting people to think in those terms. That's the first thing. I and I think for the elites, I think it's just a case of lo- gradually losing some of the illusions they have. And you know, the example that I can think of is in the 1970s, where the elites thought that wage and price controls would be a solution to inflation and unemployment. It would just be a great thing. And they, you know, throughout the late the 60s, they kept saying, try it, try it, try it. We finally tried it in the 70s. The results were horrible. And no one advocates wage and price controls as a solution today. And I think that it's just a matter, you know, hopefully, you know, the ability of the human mind to tune out uh, negative feedback is tremendous. We, you know, confirmation bias is great, but maybe at some point uh, elites will start to see that concentration of power doesn't work as well as they, uh, as they've been expecting it to. My guest today has been Arnold Klang. Arnold, thanks for being part of EconTalk. All right. You're welcome. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.